Hello and welcome to the Culture Quest. We are but humble adventurers and today we are going on a side quest. With me, as always, are Peter. Hello. And Mario. Hi, hi. And I am Inon. Thank you, the listeners at home, for taking part in our noble quest. So before we get into this, uh, let me explain what we're going to be doing today. Usually we all watch a movie or read a book or listen to an album and then we discuss it on the episode. Um, this time I've been reading up on the subject that I... Uh, was very interested in, and uh, I'm gonna tell you guys all about it. It's important to mention that I've prepared a presentation to go along with this episode. Um, you should be just fine without it if you just want to listen, but it might be fun to follow along. So um, in the show notes, you'll find a link to the presentation, um, both on Google Slides and on YouTube. Both of the versions should be accessible from any device that you may have. Anyway, I try to make this both um, interesting and fun. Um, so let's get um, right into it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, my presentation is called The Anthropocene or The Age of Man. Uh, I'm going to introduce to you this very interesting subject that touches, you know, mainly geology and some environmental and earth sciences. Feel free to stop me and ask questions whenever you want. And uh, one last thing before we start, if you're following along with the presentation, you'll hear this little bloop sound that signifies moving along to the next slide. And let's get into it. So... Here's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I'll start by introducing the idea of the Anthropocene, uh, what it stands for, where it came from. If you've heard the term before, you might know that uh, it's a term that was suggested as a name for the geological time period in which we are currently living in. As you will see, the term is still not formal in the scientific world, it's still just a suggestion. Uh, because it has a lot to do with geology, we'll talk for a short while about uh, the geological timescale and Earth's history. Then, to understand why the Anthropocene is even an idea, we'll talk about the interactions between humanity and the global system. If the term is ever formalized, then the time period of the Anthropocene has to have a starting point. So I'll present a few suggested possibilities. Then, after I've introduced all of these aspects, we'll talk about whether it should be formalized or not. I'll present a few pros and cons, and then, to end the presentation, I'll share a few personal thoughts about the Anthropocene, and then we'll discuss it. So, as I've briefly mentioned before, the Anthropocene is a term that is proposed to be used for the name of the geological epoch that we currently live in. Uh, it seems today that humanity, it's such a major factor in the global system that we influence it on every level. So much so that there's evidence that our impact is taking us out of the Earth system typical of the Holocene epoch. We'll talk about the Holocene in just a second, I'll explain what it is. But the, the main idea is that humanity has caused changes to the world that are not natural, if you will. And so it has been suggested to name the current epoch after us, the Anthropocene. Let's talk about the term's etymology. The term is made of two words. Anthropo, which in ancient Greek means human. Uh, we've talked about that word a while back, I think, in our trivia episode. We weren't sure if anthropo is specifically human or maybe it's bigger than that, maybe it's something else. So now we know anthropo is specifically for humans. It's also used in anthropology, the study of humans. The second part of the word, scene, so the scene comes from the ancient Greek word kainos, meaning new or recent, uh, also used in the Holocene, which again, I'll talk about in a second. So the term Anthropocene was first suggested by uh, Paul Crutzen, a Nobel Prize laureate, in a paper called simply the Anthropocene, which came out in the year 2000. Before his suggestion of the term, other terms were suggested, 
Some examples are the Noosphere, which means the sphere of reason, uh, the Anthropozoic Era, or the Anthropocene. But basically, it is accepted that these suggestions are based on specific aspects of humanity's impact on the global system. It's also believed that these terms were suggested before we could really understand all of the aspects of our impact on the global system. So I'm going to try and show that the Anthropocene is meant as an all-encompassing term, which puts it in a bit of a different level than the other terms. Let's talk about geology and figure out what the geological timescale is. The geological timescale is a system of chronological dating that is used to describe the timing and relationships of events in Earth's history. Um, the basic time units are eon, era, period, epoch, and age. If you're looking at the presentation, on the right side of the screen you'll see the Earth's history in the geological timescale format. And it's important to note that, like the definition mentions, each of these time periods was not just arbitrarily chosen. They were defined based on evidence that was left, usually by a major event. I'll go over the timescale uh, a little bit specifically in a bit. So, who decides what counts as a period of its own and when it begins and ends? So, um, let me introduce to you the International Commission on Stratigraphy, or the ICS. Um, stratigraphy is the branch of geology concerned with the order and relative positions of layers of sediment and the relationship to the geological timescale. Um, the ICS's primary objective is to define global units of the International Chronostratigraphic Chart that, in turn, are the basis of the International Geologic Timescale. So, after Crutzen's suggestion gained traction in 2008, the Anthropocene Working Group uh, was established as an ICS subunit. Uh, the Anthropocene Working Group, or the AWG, their role is to advise on the formalization of the term and suggest clear markers that can signify possible starting points to the Anthropocene. Let's quickly go over Earth's history and see basically how it works. I'm going to go through it without really going too deep. Uh, there's a lot more to say about each bit of it, but not all of it is relevant to the Anthropocene. So, um, between 4.5 billion to 4 billion years ago, the Earth was in the Hadean Eon. Obviously, a lot was different back then. The atmosphere was rich in carbon dioxide, the atmospheric pressure was very high, and it was very hot. Uh, the average surface temperature on the Earth was 230 Celsius, or 446 Fahrenheit. The Earth was covered by liquid oceans, and if you're wondering how liquid oceans were possible in such a hot environment, well, the answer is that the atmospheric pressure was 27 times higher than it is today, and that affects the boiling temperature of the water. Uh, the Hadean Eon is named after Hades, the Greek god of the underworld. That's uh, just a nice little tidbit there. How? How do researchers re realize that uh, that time was... Um, I mean, is this according to like layers within the Earth, or...? Definitely. All of these eons, all of these time periods were determined by layers in the strata. The oldest stones, oldest rocks that we can find on the Earth have markers that kind of point to that being the case. You can see specific minerals that are, they occur in nature only in these types of uh, conditions. Uh, okay, yeah, I get what you mean. I guess it's also a function of how deep you can dig, right? Uh, definitely. This is based on the best knowledge we can find. So essentially, like, you can find 
for instance, minerals, which could only exist if for certain conditions. And those conditions, obviously, they can use to sort of deduce other facts about the world at this time. So that's how they would get sort of these probably more more definite sort of um, outcomes, such as liquid water oceans covering the earth and stuff. It's It's a big leap to go straight there, but obviously there's probably a lot of precise measurements that come along the way yeah this is the because of the the all the sediment and everything keeps moving so a lot of the evidence gets recycled back into the uh, middle of the earth so this is the part in earth's history that we have the least amount of data on so uh, yeah. maybe this is has a bit of guessing in it as well you can only really get the data on stuff that you can reverse engineer you know if it's been washed yeah. out too many times and it's sort of lost, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So after the Hadean Eon, we have the Archean Eon, which started 4 billion years ago and it ended 2.5 billion years ago. Um, in the Archean, life on Earth began. There is evidence of the first organic molecules and um, in this Eon, bacteria have ruled the planet. An interesting side note is stromatolites. Um, these rock formations in the shallow waters are layered columns formed by the growth of layer upon layer of cyanobacteria. Uh, fossilized stromatolites around the world are the records of the ancient life on Earth. So basically, you know, a few bacteria settled down and generation after generation they built on top of each other until we had these stromatolites. We can still find some of these fossilized all around. I think we have some in the Caribbean, some in Australia, but there are places where we can still find these bacteria growing in this type of form. Do you know much more about the prokaryotic um, cells? Is that, that is before the eukaryotic, did you say? Exactly. Prokaryotic, they're the basic type of cells. They're one-celled life forms. Basically, they don't have organelles. Uh, eukaryotic uh, life forms, which uh, comes a little bit later, they're more complex. They have organelles that have specific functions within the cell. But anyway, the cyanobacteria I mentioned with uh, forming these stromatolites, uh, they've also started harvesting solar energy and atmospheric carbon in a process known as photosynthesis. That process, photosynthesis, is still widely used today. <laughs> uh, the products of photosynthesis, as you know, are sugar, which is used to store energy, and dioxygen, or O2, uh, the oxygen that we breathe which is released into the atmosphere. It's a, it's a byproduct of photosynthesis. The oxygen released by the cyanobacteria started accumulating in the waters, and then it was released into the atmosphere, and that caused the atmosphere to change from a weakly reducing atmosphere to an oxidizing atmosphere. Basically, the accumulation of oxygen in the atmosphere has led to the extinction of almost all life on Earth in what is known as the Great Oxygenation Event. Wow. Yeah, uh, that was a huge mass extinction, which has led us into the Proterozoic Eon. That occurred 2.5 billion years ago and 0.54 billion years ago, or um, 540 million years ago. In the Proterozoic, more complex and multicellular life forms began to evolve, and the ozone layer stabilized. Uh, we see the rise of invertebrates, fish, fungi, land plants, reptiles, conifers, dinosaurs, and birds. And during the Proterozoic, a few mass extinctions have happened as well. Um, these mass extinctions kind of separate the Proterozoic into subunits, which I'm not going to mention right now, uh, but you can find that information. After the Proterozoic, uh, we have the Phanerozoic, which started 540 million years ago, and it's still going today. Uh, 
this is the current eon we live in, so I'll go into smaller units of time until we get to current time. So the Phenerozoic Aeon has seen much animal and plant life. Um, 66 million years ago, there was the last mass extinction, which marks the beginning of the Cenozoic Era. Since then, mammals have diversified and grew larger. The last 2.5 million years or so are known as the Pleistocene Epoch, which is defined by alternating ice and dry periods. Around 11,700 years ago, the last ice age ended, which marks the starting point of the Holocene Epoch, uh, which is the time period we officially live in today. Um, in the Holocene, mankind has started farming, mining, expanding, and creating new technologies, which brings us to today. Um, let's talk about uh, humanity and the global system, about the interactions between us and the world. Earlier, I mentioned the great oxygenation event, um, never since that event has one species had such an impact on the global system. If you remember, almost all life on Earth was extinct. Anyway, humanity might not cause the extinction of almost all life forms on Earth, uh, but so far our impact on the Earth has definitely been global. The main reasons are the exponential growth in human population and the fact that our technology advances in leaps and... Uh, the amount of resources we require is ever-expanding. Until very recently, we've been burning fossil fuels using up resources without considering any externalities, as if our energy consumption is clean and these resources are unlimited. But now we believe that some of the global changes to the environment will be in place for, you know, a millennia or more. Some of these effects may be permanent. Uh, let me go over a few examples of changes in the global system that were brought on by humanity. I'm not going to go um, over a lot of these examples, but if you're interested, you can go on the AWG's website, uh, the Anthropocene Working Group. They have a lot of information there. The first thing that comes to mind when discussing humanity and the environment is climate change. It's caused mainly by fossil fuel burning and gas emissions that have occurred in the last two centuries or so. Um, the changes in climate patterns cause animals to change migration patterns invade new habitats, which makes a lot of ecological systems lose their balance. This may all seem kind of distant and tolerable, but the breakdown of ecological systems may have far-reaching effects such as extinctions and droughts. Of course, it's worth preserving these ecological systems just for the sake of not destroying everything we touch, but I kind of want to emphasize the fact that it will eventually come back to bite us. Um, we rely on these ecosystems and food chains for all kinds of resources and natural services. A great example for that is the fact that climate change is connected with ocean acidification, which directly leads to the decline of coral and algae communities. These are at the base of very important ecosystems that will be affected. These ecosystems produce massive amounts of oxygen while also responsible for carbon dioxide uh, fixation, which is basically removing CO2 from the atmosphere. Uh, they provide plenty of nutrients to a lot of species, Eventually, some of them we fish and rely on as food sources. Another thing is that reefs built by corals provided us with coastal protection. And also they have immense economical values, mostly in the form of tourism. All of that would just vanish along with them. Basically, these coral reefs have, have a bunch of stuff that they provide us with, a bunch of natural services that we would just not have if they all died. Um, another impact we have on the world is sediment erosion and transport. Like, sediment is always eroded by rain and weather, 
and it's always transported by rivers and stuff, but it's estimated that the rates of sediment erosion and transport have increased by an order of magnitude due to urbanization and agriculture. Uh, these heightened processes cause surface water pollution and reservoir siltation and changes in river morphology, which all directly affects people who rely on these water sources for drinking and agriculture. Uh, it also causes muddy floods, which can damage roads, clog sewers, and destroy private property. That's, again, something that is caused directly by human activity. Our impact is also noticed in aspects that are less noticeable to the naked eye, there are many biogeochemical cycles of elements that are disturbed. Um, in nature, elements and compounds basically go through a cycle in which they appear and are used in different forms in the ecosystem. A very simplified example is the water cycle. So basically, you have the oceans and rivers, which are reservoirs of water. The sun provides energy that drives that cycle. And the water in the reservoir evaporates into the atmosphere, condenses into clouds, precipitates as rain, snow, or hail, and flows back into the reservoirs. So a lot of uh, compounds go through similar cycles, which a lot of systems rely on these cycles. And today we know that many of these cycles uh, are disturbed by anthropogenic influence, basically human activity. An example for that is the carbon cycle. We used to have between... 260 to 285 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that was fairly stable between 7,000 years ago until the, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Since the Industrial Revolution till today, over 400 parts per million in the atmosphere. Basically, it used to be uh, around 260, 280 for 7,000 years until we started using engines and steam engines and uh, all kinds of technology, and it's rising since then. And carbon is known to be um, a greenhouse gas. Sorry, I'll just I'll just cut you off. Back when we were in, or what, back when I was in high school, they got on the young one. Um, basically, uh, every day was like the teacher trying to prove climate change to us. And by the end of like year twelve, which was the second year of upper school in Australia, it was like. Everyone was sort of on board at that point. It was just undeniable. And we'd always check the parts per million for the um, carbon dioxide and stuff. And I think, um, I'm not sure of the exact date, but I remember like it was during my learning that it went over 400 parts hmm. per million. It was a bit of like a milestone, bad milestone, but still milestone. These measurements were taken in Mauna Loa in Hawaii. I think they started in 1957 and they noticed the rise of uh, carbon dioxide concentration. The evidence for the 7,000 years of basically stable carbon uh, concentrations are from ice cores, from Antarctica and stuff. Yeah, because you can just dig down and then you pretty much have a time capsule. Exactly, you know, from exactly. You basically have yeah. it frozen. Do we know what happened before 7,000? Or is that just where we can get it from the ice? I think there's evidence that goes back and we know that... There is a cycle uh, that goes up and down in terms of carbon dioxide concentrations. Like, I think peak levels were 1,200 ppm. Wow. But the thing is that by looking at these evidence, you can see how much time it takes for the carbon to build up in a natural mm. way. And the, the, the rate of carbon dioxide accumulation in our atmosphere is, is nothing natural. It's wild. It's so much faster than it would be naturally. Hypothetically, if you were to map this on a graph, 
every day would just be it'd be almost the same. Yeah. Like it'd be three hundred and fifty, three fifty one, three fifty one for like a million days. And then it would go up by one more and then another million days. But us it's gone up like significantly. Like in a hundred years it's gone up. Like you would never get in before the industrial revolution, you'd never have any period where we'd go up this this quickly in it's this. basically like if you zoom out on this graph and you look at the last few million years or so it, it'll look like hills you know it goes up it goes down it goes up it goes down but then you reach the industrial revolution and there's a spike like almost immediately as well exactly well pretty much immediately because a hundred years on like a time scale of like nothing yeah, it's really nothing yeah another interesting cycle that we've um, interrupted is the um, uh, nitrogen cycle. Uh, the concentration of reactive nitrogen in the atmosphere has risen by 120% since 1913, the year in which we have started to use the Haber-Bosch process as a nitrogen fixation process, which uh, provides us with ammonia, which is used in many industries. It's basically a process that allows us to fix nitrogen from all kinds of sources. And uh, we use this nitrogen for a bunch of different purposes. And another interesting thing is the concentration of phosphorus in soils, which has doubled due to fertilizer use. Now, both uh, the nitrogen and phosphorus that are used in fertilizers and um, in different industries, they end up in bodies of water. You know, you put them in the earth, you, you put too much fertilizer, and everything that's not used up by nature reaches bodies of water, which is uh, a cause of eutrophication, a state of being overly rich in nutrients, Uh, that causes algal blooms and oxygen deficiencies, which affect the microbiota in the body of water. Sometimes in extreme cases, it even affects the macrobiota. Um, basically, the, the things we, we take for granted, like fertilizer use and, you know, buying bleach and ammonia for home use, eventually just causes changes that can really topple ecological systems. I gave you three interactions between humanity and, and the world around us. I, I tried to basically establish a connection between humanity and the global system. Um, so let's move and talk about uh, a few practicalities when considering the idea of the Anthropocene. So when you define a time period, you have to have a starting point to it. You, you can't just say, okay, now we're living in the Anthropocene, right? And due to the fact that time periods are connected by major events usually, extinctions being the most common ones, I think it kind of puts Anthropocene in a weird perspective. You know, we're comparing our impact on the Earth to major extinction events. Now, I'm not saying that this is not a good comparison. I just wanted to emphasize that point. <laughs> so when defining a new time period, basically we're looking for a golden spike. Um, and a golden spike is a geologic marker created by a global event that leads to long-lasting global changes that can be used to indicate a change in a geologic time division. Like basically, a golden spike is something that we can relate to a specific time period, and it's geologically evident, like we can see it in the strata. Like I said earlier, it's not an arbitrary choice. So when it comes to the Anthropocene, there are two schools of thought. Um, the first stands for um, choosing a point that is in humanity's recent or earlier past as the starting point of the Anthropocene, And the second stands for choosing a point that is in the future, like one that we can point to as an absolute point of no return. But the first one is much more popular. It's uh, much more likely to be chosen out of the two. So I'll focus on that one. So um, let's discuss potential starting points and markers or golden spikes for the Anthropocene. 
So a very popular suggestion is the year 1950. There are quite a few candidate markers for human activity that stands for that time period. One big one is plastic. Uh, it's been mass-produced since around the 1950s. Um, it is found now in almost every environment on Earth, including the deepest parts of the ocean. Uh, there's this guy, Victor Vescovo, he went down to Mariana Trench in a submersible vehicle. And uh, Mariana Trench, if you don't know, that's the deepest point in the world's ocean. It's uh, just under 11 kilometers. Um, he claims that when he went down there, he found a plastic bag there. And I think that's the third report of plastic in Mariana Trench. Uh, basically, we find plastic everywhere. And due to the fact that plastic is an artificial product, which has a considerable effect on the environment, and it is long-lasting in the environment, so it's a very popular potential marker. Um, other possible markers are aluminum and concrete. Uh, both are widely used. The aluminum that we use industrially is not naturally occurring, which makes it as artificial as plastic. And 98% uh, of the production of aluminum took place after the year 1950. Uh, concrete, while invented by the Romans, saw its uprise only after World War II. Both are suggested as markers for the Anthropocene and are referred to as techno-fossils. And one other very interesting suggestion is nuclear processes byproducts. Nuclear weapon testing began in July of 1945. Uh, since then, artificial radionuclides are spread and detected in significantly higher rates than before. Uh, some of these originate in nuclear explosion testings in 1952. Others come from nuclear energy production methods and other artificial processes. A suggestion for another starting point is the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and the invention of the steam engine. Um, it's considered to be the point at which our technologies started developing at an increased rate. The very first interference with the greenhouse gases balance started at this point in time, which ties it tightly with global warming, a staple of the Anthropocene. Um, there are a few specific dates in consideration, all in the 18th century. And another third suggestion is setting the starting of the Anthropocene around 8 to 12,000 years ago. Um, this suggestion is based on the time period in which farming became widely used. By the suggested starting point, um, around 8,000 years ago, humans have reached every habitable continent. Farming and agricultural techniques have begun to make their impact on the earth. Uh, the main example is clearing of land for agriculture and animal husbandry, which uh, both have influenced habitats and biodiversity and basically have led to extinctions. Uh, science shows that around 83% of wild mammals have disappeared since the beginning of civilization, uh, both due to decreased populations after the recent ice age and also pressure from hunting. So um, remember, the Anthropocene is based on our impact on the global system, and an example of an extinction that these ancient humans caused that had far-reaching impacts is the Diprotodon, or the giant wombat. Uh, Peter, have you ever heard of it? Um, I think I have. Um, was it in Australia? Yep. I just looked up the um, Diprotodon. Yep. It's like the size of a uh, mammoth. Maybe a tiny bit smaller, smidge smaller. Oh, so smaller, it, it like is a giant wombat. the same size. <laughs> very, very big. Very cute, though. Very cute. <laughs> it's a species that is believed to have kept the biomass levels in Australia's bush under control. Um, after it was driven to extinction, the wild flora is believed to have grown uncontrollably, leading to a series of widespread bushfires that have caused degradation of habitats and further extinctions. 
And I think like, you know, you sometimes hear about the an, an idea that stands for returning to our roots or returning to nature, as if back then we lived in harmony with nature, as if that balance was only recently interrupted. But our influence on nature is apparent for thousands of years back, for, for, for better or for worse. Let's move along and talk about the formalization of the Anthropocene. So it goes without saying, but there is some opposition to the formalization of the term. You know, some geologists claim that there isn't enough evidence for humanity's impact on nature. Um, basically, other time periods have easily had hundreds of thousands or even millions of years to accumulate markers in comparison. Uh, the, the, the Anthropocene is basically still very young. Some say, and rightly so, that the time periods were always named retroactively, and that has advantages, like we might still be only taking the first few steps in a new age, and who may guess how things will break out and what will be the defining features of this time period? And some even claim that the Holocene is, in a way, already the age of man. Uh, the Holocene, like I mentioned earlier, started when the last Ice Age ended. But nothing sets it apart from earlier interglacial periods, except the propagation of humanity and the spread of agriculture. So basically, the, the only thing that separates the Holocene from other dry periods is us. So why not call the Holocene the Age of Men? But well, Anthropocene supporters claim that the difference is that the Holocene's starting point wasn't directly influenced by humanity. And another interesting claim is that talking about the Anthropocene is, is a waste of time and resources. Basically, um, naming this time period won't change the way we do science. You know, it's just a name. We are already using the suggested markers as measurements of environmental factors. Another thing about this term is that it basically outgrew its roots in the field of geology, which might be a bit of a problem. Uh, the term became somewhat popular in the scientific world. I, I myself, you know, as an environmental and earth sciences student, I see the term pop up in scientific papers like every once in a while. And, you know, it's used as if it's already a formal thing. And the AWG is made up of geologists who think in geological terms. And some claim that they don't represent the scientific community as a whole. And in addition, the term is mostly used in Europe and America. And so there's a fear that it's becoming this Western term and some aspects of non-Western societies might be overlooked by it. But on the other hand, some say that, you know, it's a good thing that the term outgrew its roots. Um, it's considered to be this single word that stands for all of humanity's interactions with the Earth. Um, you know, the term sparks conversations that touch geology, environmental and Earth sciences. Uh, it considers local and global factors. It contemplates both the past, the present, and the future. And so it's, it's become this all-encompassing term that includes a number of ideas, a number of concepts, something that puts it apart from previous suggestions to renaming the current time period, as I mentioned earlier. Another thing, another pro, is that the effect that this term has will probably be strengthened by formalizing it. You know, official support from the scientific community may raise public awareness to more aspects of our existence. There's more than just climate change, which everyone's talking about today. Like, we can't just solve climate change and we've done our, our bit and let's go home. There's, there's more than that. And, well, this is why some scientists want to avoid setting the starting point of the Anthropocene thousands of years ago, because it might make it easier to live with the consequences of actions that took place in the distant past. Um, okay, let's talk about um, 
the question, should it be formalized? Uh, obviously, it's up to you to form your own opinion on the matter. Um, but I think that this question sort of became this side issue to some people. Like the effect that the term has is already evident, at least in the scientific world. Um, including the Anthropocene discussions helps raise questions about our existence and future challenges that we may face. I also think that, you know, even if it ends up not being a formal thing, it won't take back the effect that the term already has, and I think people will still keep using it anyway. And, well, I told you a bit about it, and we talked about formalization. Um, let me tell you where the process of formalization is today. Uh, we talked about um, the AWG, the Anthropocene Working Group, that are tasked with the job of uh, basically advising the ICS on this decision. So... In May of 2019, the results of a binding vote that was taken by the members of the AWG were released. And they've published the results of the vote uh, regarding two questions. The first one, should the Anthropocene be treated as a formal chronostratigraphic unit? Or basically, should it be formalized? And, well, 88% were in favor That's pretty of good. Um, formalizing the term. And uh, the second question was basically, should the marker that signifies the Anthropocene be one of those suggested for the mid-20th century? And again, the answer is 88% in favor. Now, uh, everybody's thinking that the most probable marker for the start of the Anthropocene is the nuclear byproducts that I've mentioned. Anyway, the report, uh, which is, you know, available on their website, also mentions that the Anthropocene uh, Working Group is in agreement that enough evidence has been collected to set the Anthropocene apart from other time periods. Um, they've also agreed that the term has proven useful. And, well, today there are still discussions regarding the importance of formal geological term. You know, all in all, it seems that the Anthropocene Working Group are approving of the Anthropocene, um, it's important to remember that they'll pass their findings and results to the ICS to make a formal decision. They don't have the final say. Well, here are a few personal thoughts to kind of close with. First, I like the Anthropocene and what it stands for. I think these are important subjects that need to come up. But despite that, I can't help but sometimes think that naming the time period after ourselves, you know, it's a bit self-important. Um, no one will know or judge it or anything. You know, um, it's only us here. I, I don't think it's a good enough reason to be against the term, um, but it just feels weird. I wanted to mention that. Um, I think that the fact that people are already using the term in scientific papers is a big factor in the Anthropocene Working Group's decision to support the formalization. Like, I mean, if the term becomes just another word uh, in the scientific lexicon, then it doesn't really matter if it's formal or not. You know, it, it might be just easier to go along with it. And um, one last thing, um, you know, the term is concerned with global aspects of humanity's impact. Uh, whatever the answer to these questions may be, um, these issues cannot be handled locally. We can't face them in some parts of the world. It has to be bigger than that. Um, and basically, if you guys have any questions, or if you guys want to discuss anything uh, further, go for it. Take dinosaurs, for instance. Like, I'm not a dinosaur expert, but dinosaurs were pretty dominant in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Like, when they were around, they were sort of, they were common, right? Definitely. Well, so the difference between what dinosaurs were doing and what we're doing, why is sort of like the production of carbon and carbon emissions and um, all this stuff with the water supply, why is that seems to be unnatural? 
because we're sort of dominating the world at the moment. But the dinosaurs were sort of running the house, but what they were doing was all sort of in line with nature. Like what sort of, how are we sort of defining what's natural and what's unnatural? I guess, I guess being at the top of the food chain doesn't mean that you're not living in harmony with your, with your environment. Take major predators from today and look at their predatory habits. Like basically yeah. they hunt and eat just kind of what they need. And if you look at it closely, you can see that they usually hunt and kill like the sick or the old of each population. So basically, while animals are dying, that's not the worst thing that can happen. You know, that basically also kind of strengthens the population of the hunted which we yeah. don't do. We kill uh, until everything is extinct. Like we have basically evidence for people going out and just hunting things to the point of extinction and being proud of it. Uh, that, that doesn't happen in nature. Well, here's, here's the thing, right? With, with lions, would you say it would be adaptive for them not to, not to hunt everything of their species, of, of their prey? Definitely. Because Definitely. obviously if they did that, they probably wouldn't be around. So just by the fact that they're around, that would be good indication that they know how to sort of keep the prey going, like keep their keep the lifestyle cycles going. Yeah, exactly. I think every every basic ecology course will start with an example of that, and that what constitutes its nature. It hits a balance, you know, that we're not hitting. We're not having. They hit a balance, but like we have this weird sort of predicament now where. We don't have a balance to hit. Like, we could try to do as little as we can to affect what nature would do without us. But obviously, if we pulled out of nature completely, it would do something, uh, I hope. But say something that we need. We need metal or something like that. If we just grabbed all the metal in the world, Mm -hmm. it just feels like the consequences are just, like, meaningless. Like, we just do something else, you know? Like, it doesn't... It feels like we're invincible at the moment. Yeah. Because, like, if we destroy the Earth, we'll just go destroy some other planet, you know? It just it feels like we're in this weird phase of, like, we've just broken free from this nature. Yeah, it feels so a bit, yeah. We, you know, we hope we don't run into a wall before we get off this planet. <laughs> That's why we need to solve climate change, because what happens if we don't make it to Mars? So. Yeah, I think it's called the Fermi Paradox. Have you heard about that? Yeah, I think the Fermi Paradox is, is talking about why we haven't met other intelligent life forms. Yeah, but it kind of, one of the explanation is that every intelligent species kind of... Uh, every other sort of civilizations has either fallen asleep at the wheel or broken themselves up by probably nuclear or something like that. Yeah, that there's this barrier that you can't pass because like every time you try to pass it, you, you either fall asleep or, or just kill yourself like when i think about the fermi paradox i've always thought like why we don't see aliens or something like that and like the answer that i usually sort of give would be just if like the chances of two civilizations close to each other sort of being in the same stage of development like say not 10 million years apart in their evolution like right bang on the same decade then it would be possible but the chances of that happening are very low What's more likely is that there's been heaps of civilizations around us for millions of years, and now they use nanotechnology. They're all tiny. Like, they're, they're around us all the time. We just wouldn't ever be able to see them because they're like, uh, they've got a hundred million years of like just intelligence above us. So, like, maybe they are around us, but we're, we, we're like a blind toddler looking for like people in the dark. You know, we're just stupid. But like, I never really thought about that there's like it might be a limit to like what you can get to 
Yeah, I find it very interesting. We were talking a little bit around this in our episode about um, Last Chance to See, but I think we all agree that the number of species isn't that important. Because if there's, say, 50 more types of bats, they're all still bats. Like, the way we classify... (laughs) Or the way we classify them, essentially. Like, if we find that they're, like, oh, one wing's a bit bigger than the other, we'll call this the wrong-winged bat or something. Like, that doesn't increase the diversity or anything like that. It's not... It's not that important, right? Do we agree? It's it's not about the number. It's about what we lost. You you can take it as a as a point of view of of the big picture of creating a sustainable lifestyle that will allow us to pay attention to our surrounding and because because like everything, it's a steep slope. You start allowing yourself to extinct this species or another, and then you kind of let go in another thing and until things get too out of hand and then it's too late. So like there's the first benefit of just you know, having the discipline of creating a sustainable lifestyle, and that doesn't take into attention any any specific species. So that's point number one, I think. Point number two is that as much as we're smart and great and definitely the, the dominant species on the planet, we can't create life out of nothing. And we have these specimens of things that developed for millions of years and it's like burning books like at the end of the last chance to see that's pretty much what the story also says that you're kind of burning books with the knowledge of the world at least Um, it doesn't matter if you if you lost 30 percent or 50 percent or 70 percent the number doesn't really come into play here it's it's mostly about the way that you live i feel like i agree like when people say something should be sustainable it's just like you automatically just want to agree. But I'm just trying to like sort it out in my head, right? Like I'm trying to figure the what the ultimate goal is, like the overreaching goal is. So my goal would basically be, so everyone has sort of like their own consciousness, you'd say, like not, we're not all dipping into the same consciousness or everyone has their own sort of point of view, right? I'm not sharing one with a non and I'm not experiencing what mm. he's experiencing, right? So everyone sort of has their own unique one. What I would say would be my goal would be to maximize the amount of consciousness, which is good. So, like, that sounds very broad. But, like, for instance, like, (laughs) I would say you don't want to have a planet which is just full of, like, chickens, which just go into a meat grinder every day. You wouldn't want 10 million because their lives wouldn't be a net benefit it would be a net loss for them like if if you had the option you wouldn't want to be a chicken right but say you wanted like say you can live the life of a ladybug and then you can step out you're like talking to the universe and it says would you like to be a ladybug and you say yes like i would rather be a ladybug than not exist then i would say it would be good to have more of that so essentially like to put it down to like a simple calculus, I would say it would be our moral duty to improve lives, not just not just the ones that aren't good. Of course, like lives that are already good, we should make better, but also lives that aren't good, we should try to improve them. And if we can't, then maybe it would be there's an there's a argument to be made as to whether maybe we should extinguish like a small sort of branch of animal or something which is going to die anyway or something over a longer period of time 
but like for me the goal would just be to have the most animals we could which is which are all having like really great lives like just if someone gave the option you'd say i'd want to be every single one of those animals i'd love to live any of those lives that would be what you want which is essentially what we do with humans at the moment like we'll say like population growth is great as long as we can feed everyone everyone's having a good time so like i'm just kind of expanding that to everything all animals essentially but not including plants not including like dirt or anything like that don't give a shit (laughs) (laughs) i don't get (laughs) you don't you don't get the dirt thing you don't get the plant plant thing no not at all like i think plants and you know the the things that live in dirt are just as important well to me not important like if we could just get rid of all plants but it would have no okay yeah but we can't we can't that's that's the thing we can't but hypoth i'll give you a thought experiment right so like you have to just go with me on this we can eradicate all plants and all topsoil, all that stuff. All that stuff you love. And mm. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> but it has no effect on our conscious experience. So essentially, like, no one gets happier, but no one gets sadder. Nothing. Is that okay? Like, I- I'm not sure what you're going with with this because... I'm trying to sort out my own... It feels like I- okay. I'm trying to, like, shift you, but I'm really trying to, like, find out where I am. Because, like, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, like, what we need to do as a species and stuff like that. Yeah. But I think with the ladybug, I think the best life for the ladybug would be a life that no one would interfere with. Because it evolved to live where it lives. It, it has all the tools to make the best out of its specific situation. So if we try to, I don't know, like, feed it or, or make it yeah, better. Yeah, that's a good point. I like that point. How about this argument? Evolution has been playing a role since prokaryotes, right? Yeah. So, for instance, like, evolution isn't suited to give you a good time. Like, ne- evolution wasn't on a path to Netflix. I totally agree with Netflix that. just arose naturally, right? <laughs> ne- Netflix is a survival ap- adaptation. <laughs> Quote me on that. But here's, here's the thing, right? Like, all these animals that have learned to survive over millions of years, like much longer than the drop in the water that we are, right? Then if we interfere with that, then we're interfering with, with their way of life, essentially, right? Mm, yeah. And we're only one species affecting 7,999,999. It feels like the one person who walks into a party and just annoys everything, like just disturbs the mood, music's terrible, everything, right? Mm-hmm. But- I actually kind of agree with that after saying it, but is there any argument which you could say would, which would be humans have such a broad consciousness, like we can experience so much more than some animals. Like, I don't know how much of a life a fish really has, you know, like a fish can't experience like podcasts, they can't experience movies and all this <laughs> stuff. Like they might- That we know of, yeah. They, yeah, that we know of. That's the thing because you can never be 100% sure they could be doing wild shit. But there is some argument to say, well, we are we are important. Like humans are definitely important. Like because without humans, there's no monopoly. There's no like, um, well, let's <laughs> leave it there. There's no monopoly. Um, <laughs> you know, I played, I played a pretty good match this afternoon, so I'm a bit, you know, anyway, um, <laughs> but you got to admit this humans have some importance, like we can't step away completely. We can't sort of fade into the background. It's just one, it, it just couldn't happen, but two, 
Like, it would just be such a shame if we couldn't go on and do interesting things. Like, we couldn't make art and all this stuff. Like, what's the ideal amount? Like, do we want to step back, like, 90%? Or do we want to, like, have our finger on the pulse? Like, what sort of analogy would you draw? Well, let me just say, I'm totally in humanity's side. I don't think, like, you know, that we're not important or we're as important as any other fish. And, you know, we should extinct ourselves before we extinct everything else. I think we should look out for humanity, you know, look forward and plan ahead to make the best world for us as well. So I'm I'm not saying we should stop existing. I'm not saying we should stop everything we're doing and let nature sort itself out. Everyone's going to want to keep living their, the best life. But I think we have to change the way we think. We see the world. We see ourselves as a part of it, you know, to be a part of it. We're not above it. Do you think we just should think about our effect on animals and their lives a little bit more than what we are? Is that an easy way to say it? My point is... We should keep looking out for our best interests, but we have to keep in mind that we are also affecting everything else around us, you know, which which isn't a good thing. I don't think we should affect anything around us for the better or for worse. We should, you know, do the best for us in a way that, that affects the least amount of other external factors, uh. which we can do. Like we can, you know, provide energy for the world, uh, like electricity, using solar power, which is much less detriment to the world than, you know, burning coal. We can provide food and everything, maybe not today, but we can develop methods to provide food that doesn't require habitat degradation. We could, we, maybe we couldn't 200 years ago, but things are changing and, and what we know is changing. Okay, wait, I agree with you, actually. Everything up until you said we shouldn't affect anything for the better, though. Like, would there be some examples where it might be beneficial for us to sort of change an ecological system? I don't know. Like, I, I don't think so, though, because all of these systems, the rainforests, the coral reefs, everything is has developed without us. I actually in, 100% in, agree in, when it comes to rainforests and coral reefs. But what about, like, how we keep track of some animals in the wild? Like... So some animals are just naturally, like I would like to optimistically say we have an erratic, not every <laughs> extinction event is because of us. What happens if an animal is sort of going extinct and we could find a way to help them thrive? What about that? Maybe the fact that it goes extinct is what's right in nature. You know, it's it's what keeps the balance in nature. It's bigger than that species, you know? That is very Marcus Aurelius of you. Well, my cucumber is sweet. <laughs> I think another another interesting question is uh, if you do believe in some, like what you mentioned before about if a fish has consciousness or what is your opinion about suffering and living things that suffer? Like, is it okay in order to save uh, pandas from being extinct that you make their, their individual life miserable? For me, okay? for me, it's a definite no. You would let a species be extinct in order to not make an individual panda suffer? 100%. It feels like very, it could get combative, but I'm feeling like 95 to 99% of this is just bang on. And the 1% where I disagree, I'm just trying to figure out like if I'm confused or if there's like another angle. Like, because it, it sort of, for me, it bashes into ethics in a way which is sort of interesting. I'm just like, 
have you guys heard of the paperclip maximizer? I'm not sure. No. Nope. Oh, damn! I have to explain it now. <laughs> so basically, <laughs> there's just um, there's just a robot essentially, <laughs> which is just has one goal to maximize paperclips. So it's, it's it's sort of like a dystopian thing where we just build a robot and we say, hey, can you create paperclips? So it's sort of like quite a fun robot. You know, it just goes around its business, collects a bit of rubbish and stuff that we're not using and stuff. And because it can convert atoms into anything at once, it can just create a, it takes a piece of um, paper and then it just goes up. It's now a metal and it becomes a paperclip, right? But eventually it sort of runs out of things that we're not using. So then it goes, hmm, this MacBook, that could make 1,200 paperclips. So let's just make it. And then you go, oh, where's my laptop? Awesome. Damn. So <laughs> so it keeps making <laughs> laptops. Um, sorry, it keeps making um, paperclips out of laptops. And then suddenly, like, it runs out of everything and all that's left is us. So it turns our bodies into paperclips. We just become paperclips. <laughs> so we sort of regret what it um, has become. And it's literally just destroying, like, kids and women and children and everything just to create more paper clips for us but my but the, what, the reason i bring it up is because like i feel like a bit of a paperclip maximizer in this but i'm just a consciousness maximizer so all i want is good <laughs> consciousness because obviously you can have a bad life so any good life to me is just a net win and anything else that comes behind it is just doesn't concern me too much as long as there's more people or more animals and they're happy so that's why i don't really care about plants however there's like this second step where i i agree that the ecology is so important and understanding these systems is so important and understanding more so than just stepping away but actually knowing what what an input would actually output in these systems like the water cycle and it and everything that i think it's in our best interest even if we are a paperclip maximizer of consciousness, that it's in our best interest yeah. to also be stewards of the environment. Uh, can, I just wanted to say that, you know, as, a, as an ecology, um, environmental sciences student, it, it it's just amazing how far away we are from really understanding these systems, you know? You kind of start by thinking, we know so much, we know all the basics, we just need to fill a few gaps and then we're there. But... It's so much bigger than us. It's so much... Like, I'm not saying that we won't ever be able to understand them, but at the moment, we're so far away from really knowing what's going on out there. Well, here's another argument, right? Yeah. Maybe my last one. <laughs> as much as I say I want to increase all this good consciousness, right? Maybe it's Darwinian to not think about that. Maybe it's actually advantageous to the world to actually care about plants like it might actually be better for people to care about plants because think about it 100 million years from now we might not be around if we just want to say make everyone fat and happy you know mm. maybe it is maybe it's better for us in the long run maybe we can't see it but maybe it's actually better if we care about how much stuff there is in the rainforest maybe it's just maybe it is actually important for instance take Take some religions, right? Religions who don't eat pork, right? Many, many years ago before there was like fridges and stuff, that was important. Like it may, the, the reasoning for it might have been true, might not have been, but super important. So they were playing it on the safe side. And now 
they're doing well because they actually avoided pork. You know, it was actually it was actually a survival adaption to not be eating meat that could, you know, kill you. What happens if what happens if almost like in a religious sense, maybe where we need to protect the environment almost as like gospel and even though it doesn't seem like we don't see the benefit of it now, maybe in 500 million years, maybe it'll be something that saved us. And maybe in 500 million years, we can say, well, you can eat pork again, guys. You know, we, <laughs> we, um, we found refrigerators, created them and stuff, but maybe in 500 million <laughs> years again, we can, we can say, well, you know, do what you want to the environment. We got it all controlled by AI and stuff. So whatever you do, it'll just be like, it'll bounce back like a trampoline. So maybe this is something we need to do. Maybe we need to play it on the safe side. I think it's an interesting comparison because there's definitely a, a place where um, where what we do now is because we lack... Understanding? Yeah, we lack the, the understanding and the technology to, to prevent the uh, worst sides of it. I think I read somewhere that, that not eating pork was very political at that time or something like that. But, you know, there's a, like, there's a lot of um, duties, I guess, in, uh, in Judaism regarding uh, you have to wash your hands before every meal. That's like something that went way, way before. And there's like this whole ritual, ritual where you say this little prayer, I think, or something like that. And, you know, that kind of makes a lot of sense. Just imagine that you're living in, in a time where there, it's not even sure that you have soap, but, but you do wash your hands before every meal. And I think also after going to the bathroom, and that's really beneficial. They didn't understand why, but they saw it had good effects over the community. So it's something that they, they took and, and went on forward. I think it's probably will be the same regarding our duties regarding the ecosystem. But, but the, main, the main differentiator here is that it's for a much longer run. Because when you wash your hands, then the community in, in that lifetime can see that there's less mortality over some certain diseases or, or, or some illness drop. Um, but regarding the ecosystem, it's kind of like maintaining the... Uh, maintaining something that that's already existing it's not creating something new and it's not necessarily something that will your children won't necessarily will experience if, if you if you won't do it but even if we don't take this topic too much um, we won't take it too much seriously uh, our children will probably still have forests to go to but we we kind of need to play this thing um in the long run and i think it's it's very interesting because it's like the different stage of our of our society uh maturity because as you get more mature you need to start thinking more ahead you know you as a kid you just want to eat candy right and then as a as a mature person you understand well i do i still want to eat just candy by the way i just ate a lot of candy in, in my stomach hurts. um <laughs> But but like normal adults, <laughs> what they do is they try not to eat so much candy, because they kind of they kind of see ahead, and yeah, they have foresight. Yeah, and you know that's that's pretty much regarding everything. But it's still uh, you know it's very individual driven. Yeah, and as a society, we want to extinct everything, but now we have the foresight to see how bad it would be. Yeah, and also we need to kind of think. Uh, 
is a society. I think it's harder than it sounds because like you're saying, for ages we've been thinking as, as a society. We, we created states, we created uh, you know, people and, and nations, but there's something more global that, that we need to kind of take into account here. And I think there are uh, you know, sprouts of it. There's all the, the ecological conventions uh, that a lot of countries join to. There, there's the uh, Paris Agreement, I think, that the U.S. Uh, just left or something. Um, and, and again, that it kind of seems that we're going in, in, in the right direction of, of kind of finding the responsibility. Yeah. Um, I, by the way, I, I'm not sure, regarding the, the previous question, you know, in order to preserve a species... Maybe it is worth to harm an individual happiness. I think there's also the example that you gave with... Um, the uh, paperclip maximizer, yeah. That's a cool one. I, I never heard about it before. Um, I, I think I kind of I heard about it uh, at, as, as the concept of, uh, of uh, infinite repetition. Like in order to, to kind of understand something, you need to, to repeat it until, until infinity and see, and see what you think about it then. But I think it's just... You know, I read it in some book that they say, uh, "Ah, well, look at the uh, French Revolution. It's all very romantic and, and everything." But if you'll have, if you had to do it all the time, then it's pretty horrible. It's not something that is sustainable. It's a bad thing. But that's kind of like reducing things to 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 the very act and kind of forgetting everything around it. And and th- I think that's kind of the point here, because there are certain conditions where where you need to kind of be mature and look ahead and try to understand what's the greater good here and and it doesn't necessarily means that this is now that like this is this is not the norm that you kind of repeat until infinity you, you won't make everyone suffer in order to to save a, a species but you may you may want to keep that panda in a cage in order to for its children to to be able to go back to the wild. Yeah, that's a good point. It's sort of how I feel, like, this is the SJW in me, but um, I kind of feel like the environment is how I feel about companies. Hmm. So, I really don't care about companies because companies aren't anyone. No one needs a company. But companies are made up of people. So, like, there's employees, there's CEOs, there's the customers and stuff. So, I want the company to work as, as long as it's functioning the people, right? And if it's not, then I don't care about the company. Whereas with the environment, if the environment and the ecology and the systems are serving the animals, then I want to preserve it. But if there's something that's not going right, then I think we should interfere. So... It's really not the environment that I'm too concerned with. It's just everyone in the environment. And I think right now, we don't have the wisdom to mess with it because whatever we do seems to harm it. Yeah. So maybe it should be our collective wisdom that we should study it for a million years and then maybe we press a button, you know? I, I agree, but I think there's this... I, I think I disagree with, with something very specific that... Nature or, or the environment is, is a company, but it's a company that you, you are working and will always work in. You're part of that company. There are all kinds of companies, right? There's Google, there's Amazon, there's Apple. And, you know, to each its own, like, I don't really care what, what will happen to them. 
unless I work at that company or I have stocks in that company. And then I start to really care about what's going on there. So you're saying we're all in the same company in this situation? We're not individuals that live alongside the environment. We're individuals within the environment. That, yeah, that's a good point. And because of that, you will always have to care what, what's happening here. And you know, it's not, it's not like losing your job and finding a new one. Like, I guess we can, we can wally this thing and, <laughs> and kind of move to a, to a <laughs> spaceship and, and get all fat on, on floating boat, on floating chairs. That. Yeah, that sounds, by the way, really, really cool. <laughs> As I always say with people that are smarter than me, I agree with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but until then, and even then, we'll probably, we won't want to lose this job. I, you know, one of the things that I always liked about uh, sci-fi movies is that it seems that no matter how how it seems that the human race has kind of gone everywhere to all parts of the galaxy and beyond, like the Earth remains its capital, right? It's it's the home that everyone kind of always talk about and 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 mention as a the cradle of humanity. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a special place, and it always will be. You know, even when we'll find these solutions. And Mm -hmm. I think it will be a good call not to completely destroy it. (laughs) Let's play it on the safe side. Like, let's not destroy ourselves just just in case. (laughs) Well, let me ask you guys. Would you vote in favor of officializing the Anthropocene then? I would. And the main reason, without understanding all the geology behind it, is that once you coin the term, then everything sort of follows, you know? Mm -hmm. Like... It just it's just one of those things like as soon as they they were talking about quantum gravity, then all of a sudden all the books come out about it, you know? So it's it's one of those things where I think sometimes you need a bit of branding just to be able to kickstart it. My initial tendency was was towards no, because like it's it's still really early to say, but I kinda I, I agree with Peter. I think there's a specific benefit like like actual benefit for these times to kind of coin it and be able to reference it you know for different topics i think if we coin it too early and then we do all this research and stuff and then a million years later it's all thing no one's going to care anyway that we named it like a couple years (laughs) early like but i think it will do more more good than harm yeah yeah that's where i stand like i said it seems a little bit self-important um it's way early to call this age the anthropocene but i think it has a good effect to it and basically that's uh, that's what we need and also it's it's being used today and and i see it a lot in papers and every time i see it i think they're they're using it and it's effective it it does a trick why why do you think it's a self-importance or or is it why why is it bad because you know we're we're kind of important i think yeah like I said, it's just a minor thing. It's nothing against formalizing the term, but it's just funny to to name, like you know, the the entire time period after humanity. You know, like it's like saying, okay, we've noticed that we're destroying everything, so let's have a party in our name. You know, <laughs> it just feels kind of funny. I'm not saying it's uh, it's not a yeah. knock against the Anthropocene. Depends at how all. you look at it, actually, because like sometimes you could think about it as like it's putting the blame solely on us. Like it's not like the Anthro. Oh, and those bloody babooner scenes, you know. Like, it's <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but um, so yeah, it is putting the blame solely on us. But then again, 
if the baboons made it the Anthropocene, we'd be pissed. That would be a shame. Yeah. I can totally see someone, you know, who doesn't really understand the science thinking, oh, wait, is this time period the humanity period? The Anthropocene? Fucking A, we're number one. <laughs> Everything was shit until humans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Um, so I think this has been our first side quest. I don't know. Maybe we'll do more. I have one in plan. I think Peter does as well. I have one in 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 process. And I, and I think it's a it's a fun format. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic job. And yeah. Really good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Kudos. Actually, let me tell you where I like how I started reading about this. Um, last year or maybe two years ago, I needed something to fill my time with. You know, I. I like I was really enjoying uh, when I was in college, like learning a lot of things, but I kind of felt like I wanted, you know, choose what I'm learning, you know, use my mind for something that specifically interests me. So back then I started writing this blog where I, like each each blog post was basically an article. I chose something I was interested in, researched it until I felt like I knew enough about it to explain it. And then I wrote about it like a, a 2000 word article. And um, when I started the, the master's degree, when I started university last year, like I found that I don't have enough time and enough capacity in my mind to do both the, the, the thesis I'm working on and the blog. So I stopped doing it. And the last article I was working on was this, the Anthropocene. Mm. Like I was already in, in kind of in the late stages of writing the article. You know, I've done all the research. I've started writing everything. But like I then kind of stopped doing it. So... When we talked about doing these side quests, I thought like I already have a subject researched, and like I I found it extremely interesting back then, and I wanted to you know put it out there. Now I have the chance, you know. Now I it's it's a bit of a, a moment of closure for me. Cool. Um, I'm, it's something I was sitting on for a while now. Yeah, really good. Thank you guys for listening. Yeah, for sure. I actually think that this whole concept of side quests that could be like a, a podcast of its own. You know, yeah. I think it's super interesting to every time, like like you did in the blog and what you did now, grab this topic, research the hell out of it and just bring the, the interesting facts and create a discussion around it. That's that's really cool. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. You've you've set a high bar. Oh, yeah, that's what I meant to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, honestly, like I'm now working on another one, which won't be half as deep. Like the, the next one I'm doing is about a video game. Uh, so it's it's going in a different direction altogether. <laughs> That's really so cool. how how frequent are we gonna are we gonna do this? Well, the the way I see it, I'm I'm enjoying working on it in the background. Like I've worked on this uh, the Anthropocene one. I gave it like thirty minutes a day for the last month or so and that's you know after i've done all the research and everything so like for the next one i think i'm gonna i don't know read about it 20 30 40 minutes a day and when it's done i'll tell you guys and we'll record the episode yeah cool i think i think uh yeah if peter got one ready and uh we, we can also go haven't got one ready i'm planning it now i've switched my topic a little bit something a bit more lighter but i am i'm just trying to work out how i'm going to put it together both with the technology and um, how I'm going to split up the segments a little bit. But it, this is this was really good one to model it on. So Yeah. Yeah. And the way I see it, if we do one every few months, that, that'll be perfect. Yeah. Maybe like a couple, three, four months. I don't know. I think I also have um, one that's about 70% ready. I, I, I did it at my, uh, at my job, like a lecture about encryptions. Mm, yeah. Nice. Oh, that's really cool. I'm trying to make 2020 the year of sort of 
learning a little bit more about tech. So that's why I went on that rant about Google and <laughs> all this stuff. So um, I- I'll be very interested in that encryption. Yeah, cool. I'll look into it. Maybe I can bring it uh, sooner than later. Awesome, awesome. Very cool. In our next episode, uh, we're going to be watching the TV series Firefly and the accompanying feature film Serenity. Um, it's the first TV show um, that we're going to be discussing on this podcast, which is um, pretty cool. I think that this is a very highly regarded uh, thing amongst, you know, the geeks. It's a cult following, definitely. Yeah, definitely. It was created by Joss Whedon, who, well, <laughs> he also did Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He did Dr. Horrible's Sing Along blog. He worked with Marvel on some comics, if I'm not mistaken. He did the first two Avengers movies. He did the Avengers in 2012 and in 2015. 2015 didn't get amazing reviews, but I think most people will agree that the first Avengers may be one of the best films in the franchise. So that's... That's definitely how I heard of him. I think he also worked on the Justice League movie. Con- <laughs> Controversial, but yeah. There's a bit of a disagreement about how much he worked on it. They oh, say really? he did 20%, but people think he did a bit more. But um, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I to- uh, a that. discussion for another time. Yeah. Hmm. Oh. Um, anyway, the main characters in uh, Firefly are played by Nathan Fillion, uh, Gina Torres, Ellen Tudyk, and uh, Morena Baccarin, uh, which is, you know... It's it's a bunch of like familiar faces and and like very, very endearing people, uh, very very fun actors, and the TV series had one season of fourteen episodes. I think it ran in two thousand and two. Um, at that point, it got canceled. It was kind of left with a few unfinished plot lines. So they then made the movie Serenity that came out in two thousand and five, which is supposed to kind of close the story and close everything up. That's good. I didn't know they did the movie, but um, that's yeah. really cool. And, uh, well, a few years back, I had, you know, uh, quite a few friends who just adored Firefly and Serenity. Like, they never stopped talking about it. So, you know, we had this kind of a slumber party kind of thing that we watched most of the TV show. I think we watched, like, eight or nine episodes. And, you know, I remember it was kind of fun and different. But, like, I wasn't paying too much attention to it. You know, I had a bunch of friends around me and everyone was talking and, and eating pizza and stuff. And then I watched the rest on my own. But, like... I don't remember too much from it. You know, I wasn't too much into it. And anyway, since then, my girlfriend and I have been talking about watching the movie, Serenity, but I don't really remember anything from the show. So um, here's an opportunity to watch it again, uh, pay some attention to it, and, well, enjoy the whole thing. Cool. Cannot wait. Yeah, I think it's going to be fun. So thank you, Peter, and thank you, Barrio, for staying true to our goal. And thank you, the listeners at home, for helping us along the latest stage of our quest. Um, We hope that you join us again next episode, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. See ya. See ya. Hi, I'm Jenny, the host of It's Murder Up North. If you're curious about the murderous north of England, this podcast is definitely for you. I've lived in various parts of the north of England. I went to college in the shadow of Saddleworth Moor where Myra Hindley and Ian Brady buried those five innocent children. I've worked in the city of Leeds, where the Yorkshire Ripper targeted his victims in the 1970s. Knowing how geographically close I have been to these crimes made me curious, and that curiosity became this podcast. However, my main hope is to help you see the person, not the victim.